good to be with y'all. Uh, we are in 1 Kings 18, and I, I am not being falsely modest when I say that if you leave tonight inspired, it is not because of me, because this is just one of those stories in Scripture, one of those chapters. You would have to be a heretic or absolutely incompetent at preaching to mess this up. So I, I hope that you'll leave encouraged, because if not, I really, really messed up. I don't think I'm a heretic, so that would be the case. But with that in mind, putting all that pressure on this night, uh, 1 Kings 18, and this is the right sheet tonight, I checked. Uh, let me just start with this. There was a, a man some of you may have heard of, uh, although lived a long time ago, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, actually died in 1960, but was one of the... One of the pioneers of radio ministry. He actually was the senior pastor of a large Presbyterian church in Philadelphia, but he was known nationwide because he was one of the first to really use radio technology to teach scripture. Uh, you hear that today and you think, oh, like a televangelist. No, this is in the days before that kind of stuff happened. This was a man who just found a way to get the word of God out. And so there were generations of people who, were, who grew up under his teaching. So I say all that to say this. Barnhouse tells the story of when he was in seminary. He pastored a little church like some seminarians do, a little bitty church there in, in uh, the inner city. And one Sunday he was very surprised to look out into his congregation and see one of his professors sitting there. And so, of course, he you know, tightened his tie and thought, boy, I hope I brought my A game. And he preached his sermon. And when he got done, the, he went up and greeted the professor. And he said, I'm so honored that you were here. And he said, First thing the professor said, well, that's good because I'm never coming back. And he thought, oh, no, what did I do? He said, no, you didn't do anything wrong. He said, I try to visit all of my students who are preachers because I want to know if they're big godders or little godders. <laughs> and he said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, you know, a, a big godder believes in a big God, a God who can do anything and a God who demands great things from his people. A little godder believes in a God who never interferes in our lives and just kind of exists out there on the periphery and you don't really have to worry about him. He said, so I, I understand from the sermon today that you, sir, are a big godder, so I don't need to visit you anymore. I'll go deal with someone else. I'll go track, track down somebody else who needs my instruction. Now, think about that idea. Are you a big godder or a little godder? And, and what I'm about to say next, this is not Barnhouse, this is me. This is your significantly less... Uh, famous pastor of First Baptist Conroe, and that is, I, I know of three specific kinds of little gods that Christians believe in. There's a lot more I'm sure you could come up with, but I want to mention three before we get into the message. And I've, I've given them names. These are my names that I've given them. The first is the grandpa, and that's the God who just adores the heck out of us no matter what we do. Oh, he just thinks we're adorable and wonderful and delightful. And sure, we sin once in a while, but when we sin, he just looks down and goes, oh, you little scamp. I mean, I just can't help but love you. You're just so, you're just so beautiful. You're just so perfect. I mean, how could I not? There's, there are genuinely people who claim to be Christians, and that's when you talk to them, that's the God they trust in. Uh, then there's the genie. And sort of on a related note, the genie is a God who exists simply to make our lives better. He is, he is the one who exists to uh, help us find the, the life we've always wanted, to make our dreams come true. And so most people who believe in this God, their, their relationship with God is essentially, you know, I work hard 
to achieve my dreams. And wherever I can't do, I come to God and I, He gets me over the top so that I can get the things that I want. Uh, this is very much about God. He works for me. He answers my call. As long as I don't ask too often, as long as I save it for the big things, He comes through for me. And then there's the one I call the validator. Now listen carefully to this one because in my opinion, the first two are mostly from people who, who would say they're Christians, but they don't go to church. The, the nominal Christian who maybe got baptized when he was a little kid and maybe shows up at Easter and Christmas, but not really is actively following God. But in my experience, there's a, in most churches, there's a lot of people who believe in a validator God. And the validator God says, uh, whoever you hate, I'm going to hate them too. You know, whatever you believe, I'm going to believe it too. I'm just going to endorse whatever it is, is your agenda in life. That's what I exist for. And so literally, the, the God they believe in, if you sat down and asked them, okay, if, if you were to totally obey God, how would you have to change the way you think? And they'd be baffled. They'd say, what do you mean? God agrees with me. God, God is on my side. I mean, all my agenda, all my thoughts, all my, all my opinions, that's, that's sure. I, that's God. They never realize that you're never going to get to the 100% agreement with God. You're never going to get to the point where everything you believe is what God believes. We're still in process, but people who believe in a validator God don't like to be challenged. They don't like to be told, you know, that thing you're so hot and bothered about, that's probably not all that important to the Lord. Or it might not even be what He believes or wants you to think. Uh, so keep in mind uh, that there's a lot of folks in our world, and I'm not pointing any fingers at anybody in this room, but a lot of folks in our world and a lot of folks in our churches that believe in a God that is barely, if at all, biblical and is more a God we've created in our own image than the other way around. And I mention that because 1 Kings 18 is one of those chapters that shows us how big God really is. And it challenges me. I shared last week when we embarked on this portion of 1 and 2 Kings where we're talking about Elijah and Elisha. And we'll be in this for a few weeks now. And the thing I love about it is... I, I look up to these guys. There's so many things that I want to be and so many qualities in them that I, I want in me that I pray for God to give me. So every time I read these stories, I'm, I'm reminded someday God's going to get me there. Uh, but last week we saw uh, God being prepared by, I mean, Elijah being prepared by God for a big showdown with the king and queen of Israel, Ahab and Jezebel. And what that looked like for Elijah was he left his home in Tishbe on the other side of the Jordan from Israel proper. He went into the land and announced that there would be a drought. There would be no rain or dew until I say so, until the Lord tells me there's going to be rain. And then he promptly disappeared, went to a brook where he hid. Uh, basically, when I say a brook, I, you shouldn't picture like a, a bubbling brook rolling down the stream uh, from a spring. This is, this is a, what, what they call in Israel a wadi, what we call a gully, where the overflow of the Jordan went. He stayed there, drank water from the brook, ate uh, bread and meat that was brought to him every day by ravens until God said, nevermore. Anybody get that joke? Anybody? Um, and then all of a sudden there was no more meat and bread. And then God said, okay, now I want you to go to Zarephath. There's a widow there who's going to take care of you. Zarephath was, was not only hundreds of miles away, but it was the territory where Jezebel was from. It was pagan territory. 
He lives with this widow, this pagan widow, who, because of God's power, has a never-ending supply of flour and oil. Started out with just a little, little bit in the bottom of a jar, and now it never runs out as she feeds herself and her son and Elijah. And then, after a while, the widow's son dies, and Elijah comes to her. She's so infuriated that she doesn't know the Lord, and so she thinks that God has brought judgment upon her, that it's because of her own sin that her son died. Uh, the, the wonderful thing, of course, is that God doesn't kill our children because of our sin. He killed his son because of our sin, right? He, he sent his son to die for our sins. That's the way it works, but they didn't know that. So Elijah prays for the son and gets down on him hand to hand, face to face, prays for him, and that boy comes back to life. It's the first time, as far as we know, in human history, certainly in the Bible, the first time a dead person has been revived, but certainly not the last. And so that's all preparation for what's going to happen in this chapter. So beginning of chapter 18, verse 1 says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now I need to pause right there and say something. You know that there's a book of the Bible called Obadiah, written by the prophet Obadiah. This is not that Obadiah. I know it's hard to imagine, but there was more than one Obadiah in the world. And that Obadiah that wrote that book lived in a different time. This man, and this is the only story we have about him in the whole Bible, but I'd love to meet him. I look forward to meeting him in heaven because he's, he's an exceptionally courageous and faithful believer in God. He is an employee of the king. He's a government employee, you might say. Very close employee because he runs the household. He runs the palace. So he makes sure there's a guard posted. He makes sure that the food is delivered and the food is cooked and the king's needs are all met. So he works closely with this horrible king and queen. And yet he is a faithful believer in Yahweh. And so I told you before that when Jezebel came from Sidon, you know, here's this woman who just passionately believes in the God Baal. Now, that's how they said it. We say Baal, so I'm going to say it that way from this point on. The God of the Sidonians. So up to that point, Israel's never been faithful to God. They've always thought, well, we'll worship the Lord, but then when, the, when push comes to shove, we'll also give offerings to Baal and to Ashtoreth and to Molech and all these others. But Jezebel comes with an agenda that says, no, we're wiping out Yahweh entirely. We're going to be a Baal-only country. And so she sends the word, and soldiers go out and round up all the prophets of the Lord, and they kill them. Except, now look what it says next in the parentheses. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And there's just that sentence about this amazing thing that this man did in the whole Bible. And yet you have to sit there and think, how much courage did it take to go to work every day and, and sit under the nose of the king and queen, knowing that you were involved in something illegal, something which if it were found out, 
No telling what they would have done to this man. They would have had to make an example of him, not just kill him. They would have had to kill him in some gruesome way. And they would have hunted down those 100. They'd have gone to the cave and killed those 100 prophets. So the, the courage it took for this man to do this. I, again, this is not the point of the sermon. But I, I, every time I read that, I just think, goodness, I can't wait to meet Obadiah when I get to heaven. What a, what a man of courage. Not a preacher, not a prophet. A government employee who said... I'm going to stand up for what is right. I'm going to lay my life on the line for the sake of God's work. So, verse 5. There's the end of that sermonette. But verse 5. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land, to all the springs of water, and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass, and save the horses and mules alive, and not lose some of the animals. That just tells you how severe the famine was. Jesus when he's commenting on this in his lifetime, he says it lasted three and a half years. And you can imagine if we didn't have rain around here for three and a half years. So severe, all the horse, all the livestock are going to die. Just, let's just see if we can find some little outpost of, of grass somewhere in this land. So verse 6 says, So they divided the, line, the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. Now, I'm not going to read this part, but it says that Elijah was terrified. He didn't want to give Ahab that message because he said, I know what happens. You're never in one place. God is always picking you up and moving you somewhere else. So I'm going to go to Ahab, and he's going to bring all of his men to come arrest you, and you're not going to be there, and then I'm going to be in trouble. And what he reveals at this point is how, 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 Ahab, how Elijah is the most wanted man in the country, that Ahab has literally gone to every nation in the Middle East. He has sent messengers to say to the kings of those nations, listen, I'm looking for this guy. He, he wears a garment of hair. He's, he's ugly. He's nasty. Uh, his name is Elijah. Do you have him? If you don't, you better swear because I need to catch this guy. He's the cause of all my troubles. So with that in mind, you're about to see the first encounter of Ahab and Elijah. Verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. And how can you not love this guy? <laughs> Who says that to a king, even a king you don't like? I mean, think about the, whatever government official you've disliked the most. I bet, maybe I'm wrong, but I bet if you met them, just the, the awe of being in the presence of someone powerful like that would make you at least a little bit meek. Elijah's got no meekness about him in this moment. I'm not the one that troubled Israel. You have and your father and your mama too, basically. So um, yeah. Verse 19 says, now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So yeah, he throws in his wife as well and says, I want you to meet me at Mount Carmel. I've got something in mind. And Ahab does it. Now, what this points out to us, and we'll get into the story in just a moment, but I just need to say, in a culture that's hostile to our faith, and let's be honest, 
We are not living in a culture that is this hostile to our faith, not even close. But if you're old enough to remember how things used to be, you look around and you say, well, you know, Christians used to have a different kind of place in our culture and society than we do today. We used to, the things we cared about, society cared about. The things that we were upset about, that made a difference. Now it's less and less the case. So those of us who are older especially, we're starting to get concerned about the trajectory of our place in society. And what we look at is, in that kind of culture, the tendency is to say, well, we just need to hunker down. That's what we do when a storm comes, right? A storm comes, we just board up the windows and we hunker down, we, we ride it out. And so in a spiritual sense, I don't know what's with this microphone, but uh, it'll work. Uh, in a spiritual sense, we, we wanna do the same thing. In a hostile culture, we just say, okay, let's stay in our church. Let's keep doing the things we're doing. Let's keep the old traditions alive. And, and that's what God will count as faithfulness. Whereas someone like Elijah would say, no, if this, if this is a storm, you need to get out of your building and go rescue the people who are in trouble. You see the difference? We're not just trying to ride out the storm. We're getting out into the wind, into the rain, and we're trying to rescue as many as we can because that's our job. And yeah, that's dangerous. And yeah, it's safer just to hunker down. But our job is to be a lighthouse, not, uh, not a, a museum, right? So that's what this story reminds me of. Elijah could stay in Sidon and stay with this widow, but God says, go behind enemy lines and see how many you can save. All right, so verse 20 says, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. By the way, that indicates Obadiah hadn't even told Elijah about those 100 prophets he's hidden in the cave. Verse 23 says, Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, He is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. So, to help you get a picture of this, Mount Carmel is near Haifa, modern-day Haifa. It didn't exist back then. Uh, but So it's near the coast. You can't see the coast from there, but it's near the Mediterranean coast. Um, it is not a mountain. Really, the only mountain that's mentioned in Israel in the Bible that looks like a mountain to us would be Mount Hermon in the north. The rest are hills. This is a high place. If you go there today, you drive up to it, and there's a, there's a Catholic church on top, very beautiful church. There's a statue of Elijah there. And then when you walk out the back of the church in the gift shop, <laughs> I mean, yeah. When you walk out through the gift shop, there's an there's a area where you can stand and look over into the Jezreel Valley. And it's beautiful. It's, you can see for a long way because right there at that hill, all of a sudden it drops off into this wide expanse. In my mind, the people are down there in the valley and they're looking up at this high place. 
And when it says all Israel, you need to understand, that doesn't mean every man, woman, and child in the whole land was able to come, but what it means is a lot of people. They came from all parts of the land, and why not? They know who Yahweh is. They've been taught about Him, but they also know that their king and queen have forbidden the worship of Him. So here comes this man who says, let's have a heavyweight battle between the new gods and the old god, and let's see who wins. Well, who wouldn't show up for that? So there they are waiting for this contest to take place. And I want you to notice how Elijah keeps increasing the odds in favor of Baal. And he has a plan for that. So it starts with him saying, listen, there's only me. And there's 450 of them. They're all going to be praying. It's just going to be me praying to the Lord. So then, and he even gives, they don't even flip a coin. He says, you can have the ball first prophets of Baal, I'll let you take first shot. So verse 25 says, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose, your, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. I think limped is kind of making fun of the sort of dance they did as they went around the altar. Verse 27. By the way, this whole next section is a perfect example of ancient satire. You can tell that the writer was doing his best to show how ridiculous these people looked. So, verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. Again, that's his noon. They've been doing this all morning. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Remember, Elijah knew that the Canaanites believed that Baal had to be risen from the dead every year when it was time for the rains to come so they could plant, that he died every year during the dry season, then he had to be brought back. By the way, how did they wake him up? I'm sorry, sorry to say this, we don't have any kids in the room. Uh, right? No kids in the room? Okay, good, good. You're not a kid. Sorry, sorry, Jeff. You're older than me. So uh, uh, the, the way they woke Baal up was through ritual prostitution. So the men would go visit the temple of Baal and visit the priestesses there, and they believed that their activity woke Baal up and inspired him, since he was a fertility god, to do his part to fertilize the earth. Can you see why, if you weren't committed to Yahweh, especially if you were a man, you would say, you know, here's the Lord, and He wants me to walk this line of righteousness and be like Him. And here's Baal who says, just indulge your basest desires, and it works, and it sends rain, and it's good for everybody. Can you see why paganism appeals? Now, that's very much a side note, but I want you to understand why the Israelites could so easily turn away from the God who had done so much for them. And here's Elijah mocking Baal, and nothing happens. Verse 28, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And yes, by the way, the, the, the way the ESV translates Elijah's words is 
from what I understand, very accurate. He is cruelly mocking their God. He is making fun of him. Maybe he is in the outhouse right now. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he just forgot. Maybe his daytimer didn't go off. I mean, he is mocking this God. He is committing what would be blasphemy if Baal were real. And note, he has let them have more time than they were expected to get. He lets them go on until almost sundown, the time of the evening offering. And he's not done. He's not done increasing the odds. Not only does he give them 450 prayers while he only has one, not only does he give them almost the entire day to call on their God, waits himself until the shot clock has almost expired. I keep mixing my sports metaphors. I hope you forgive me. Um, but now he, he says, okay, tell you what, I, I'm going to repair the altar. Apparently there used to be an altar to the Lord up on top of Mount Carmel, and it's either been torn up by the pagans or it has fallen apart due to neglect. He repairs the altar. He, he says, bring me the pieces of that bull. They, they lay it on the wood. And then he says, pour some water on it. Four times they douse the sacrifice with water. So much water that the trench that he has dug encircling the sacrifice fills up with water. Now, what is he doing? Well, maybe y'all are aware. Remember the stories of Harry Houdini. I was going to say, remember Harry Houdini, but none of you are that old. Uh, when Houdini would go and do these escape acts and he would increase the odds. He would say, okay, not only am I going to escape from this pair of handcuffs, I'm going to escape from this pair of hand handcuffs upside down with a, you know, wrapped in a sack and they're going to drop me into the Chicago River. Uh, and before this even starts, I want the chief of police of Chicago to come out here and verify that these are real handcuffs to test them to make sure you know there's no trick in them, there's no, this is real. And that's what made him famous, is because everybody knew his, his acts were real. He was really putting himself in, in danger. That's what Elijah's doing here. He's saying, I want you to see, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is God. This is not me. This is not, uh, I don't have some trick where I'm going to light some kind of flammable fluid that's going to trail up there and, and catch it on fire. I'm, I'm not counting on some kind of a, a rogue lightning strike because this wood is soaked. There's nothing that can light this on fire except the power of God. Verse 6, 36 says, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let none of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now, I just want you to picture thousands of people gathered on this vast valley, looking up at this hill where this pageant has been taking place. And you know, I mean, you're there all day. You're getting tired. You're not watching the whole time. You're talking to your buddies. You're telling jokes. You're, you're singing songs. You're sending guys out to bring back food. And the day is long. And then Elijah gets up there. Oh, okay, let's see what this guy's got going. 
And suddenly from out of the sky comes this absolute holocaust of flame, just like you've never seen anything like it. It's just this, this massive explosion of bright red flame comes gushing from the clouds and consumes that, that sacrifice to the extent even the stones are burned up. There's nothing left but a, but a smoking spot of grass and dirt. Is it any wonder? And, and by the way, at that moment, you're thinking, this is the God I've turned away from? This is the God I've rejected in favor of someone who had all day to show up and did nothing? Can you imagine the, the, the fear they felt? The, the sense of, oh, we're, we're under judgment right now. We must repent. We must get right with the one true God. And so they do, they fall on their faces. And if you're bothered by the idea of the prophets of Baal being slaughtered, just understand that is part of the law of Moses. Because these are not pagans. These are Israelite men and women who have chosen to preach a false God. And the law of Moses is very clear on what is to be done in that case. They're just obeying the law in this case. Now, I want to point something else out, and then we'll finish up the story. Uh, when Elijah prays, and it's a great prayer, but there's this one line that I love. He says, I pray that this people may know that you, are, that you, O Lord, are God, and you have turned their hearts back. And what I want to say to you is, when that is our genuine motive, we can never fail. The problem is, so much of what we do, especially as individuals, but even as churches, that's not really our motive. Our motive is to make life easier on ourselves. Our motive is to put our enemies in their place. Our, enemy, our, our, our motive is uh, in some way self-serving. But when our genuine motive is, I just want to show people that you are God. I just want people to know that you're real and that you love them and that you would turn their hearts back. Once that becomes our true motive, then we can't be stopped. The devil fears that. That's what revival looks like, is when a church is full of people that are concerned about that more than anything else. And that's what we should be praying for. Now, verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. Remember, it hadn't rained in three and a half years. And he bowed himself down to the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and he looked and he said, there's nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. So again, hadn't rained in three and a half years. Some of you have lived through droughts. You know what it's like to wake up in the morning and you look up and there's storm clouds in the sky and you think, aha, we're finally going to get rain. And then those clouds blow away and you just, oh my goodness, why can't it rain? Elijah says, it's going to rain. In fact, it's going to rain so much you're going to have a hard time getting back home and there's not a cloud in the sky. And then there's one that when his servant holds up his hand, he goes, yeah, it's about that big. One cloud. Elijah says, that means it's coming. He better go. Because he knows the Lord has said there's going to be rain today. Now, this is the part I love. I love this whole story, but I love this detail. And in a little while, the heavens, this is verse 45, in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. 
And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Want to know how far that is? It's 25 miles. Elijah ran a marathon, and he beat the chariot there in a rainstorm, right? It's, it's this pouring rain, and Elijah is so on fire, filled with the Spirit, he tucks the, the hem of his garment under his belt, girds up his loins, as they say in the King James Version, and just outruns the chariot 25 miles. This is, I would say, maybe second only to Pentecost, the best day a preacher ever had. I mean, this is, this is the ultimate. This is the summit. And next week we're going to see that it's followed immediately by the darkest moment of his life. But how can you not love that story, right? So, real quick, how do we apply this to us? I don't just want to leave you with a great story. I want us to, to take some things home. So, this is not about, you know, when I call on God, He'll do what I say. I can call on God and He'll send fire from heaven. No, no, no. Remember what happened when the apostles, James and John, wanted to do that in Scripture. They wanted, they wanted to call down fire on a Samaritan village, and Jesus said, what do I have to do with you guys? You sons of Zebedee, you're nothing like me. That's not what I want in mind. The, the point of this is not, well, all unbelievers are our enemies who must be destroyed. Okay, so if, if while I was saying this, you were picturing uh, the... The, the non-Christians out there, whoever they might be, you know, whatever, whoever your boogeyman is, uh, maybe a political opponent, maybe a person of another religion, maybe an atheist, if you're thinking that's who this is about, it's not. Because remember, Elijah in this story is speaking to Israelites. This is similar to Jesus criticizing the Pharisees. When the Romans are out there living godlessly and Jesus has no criticism for them because he's criticizing his own people. He's saying, you know better. And that's what Elijah's doing. We have made a covenant with God. Moab had, has no covenant with God or Amalek or, or uh, Edom or any of those other countries. I don't expect them to act like, like good Israelites. But you have a covenant with God and you're preaching Baal. And so we have to get this straightened out. So again, when you think about this picture, uh, this story, and you try to put it in present day America, non-Christians outside are the pagans in this story. They have nothing to do with Elijah and Elisha. This is people in the church that Elijah is criticizing, calling to repentance, okay? So make that mind shift. So what does this mean? Three things that I wanna tell you about. Number one, we need to pray for God's power to be made manifest in us. How often do you say to the Lord, Lord, we need your power? Not just to heal this person's illness. We do that all the time, and we should. How often do you say, Lord, we need the power of God to come upon this church? We need the God, power of God to enable us to see more people get saved. Amen. How many times do you pray, Lord, we need the power of God because there's families that are broken. We want to see them reconciled, and only you can do it. We, there are lives that are broken and messed up and, and people who are strung out on addictions and, and people who are chasing after the wrong thing. And we need your power to help them because we want to see lives changed for your glory. How many, how many times do we sit and just dream? You know, if the power of God fell, the whole community could be transformed and his name could be glorified. And, and I'm afraid, I hate to say this, 
I think as Baptists, a lot of us are afraid to pray that way because we might become Pentecostal, right? (laughs) And I'm only partially joking. We need to pray for God's power to fall. Let me just challenge you to do that on a regular basis. If nothing else, Sunday morning when you wake up, today, Lord, when we gather, I pray that your power would fall upon us and that something good would happen, something glorifying to you would happen. Just file that away and bring it out on a regular basis. I, I, I know we need to pray that way. Secondly, we need to expect things, great things from God and attempt great things for God. That's not my invention. I didn't make up those words. That was the sermon preached by William Carey in England when he was trying to convince the English Baptists to send missionaries to India. Baptists, Protestants, period, had never sent foreign missionaries. And you know, like I've told you before, their attitude was, ah, God can convert the heathen on his own. He doesn't need our help. And Carey said, we need to expect God to do great things, and we need to attempt great things for Him. When's the last time we did anything that really required God's power? Let's ask ourselves the question, what's the next risk we need to take? What's the next big thing we need to attempt or expect? And that's not presumption. That's not telling God what to do. Elijah knew that God's will was that he confront the prophets of Baal, so he did it. And that's our attitude. We should be seeking God's will. We should be expecting Him to send us on tough assignments, and we should follow through. And then third, ask God for revival and awakening, because we need both. And the difference between the two, as I see it, revival is when God's people come back to life. That's why it's revival. You can't be revived if you haven't been vived, right? So revival is what happens to God's people. I hear people all the time say, oh, we need revival in our country. And I know what they mean is we need for those people out there to get their act together. No, revival is what happens to us. It's like I said earlier in the prayer. We need to let go of our idols. and We need to come back to the Lord. Awakening is what happens when suddenly there's a great turning to Christ among those who are lost. The last one of those that I'm aware of in any national level was the Jesus People Movement among the hippies in the 70s. And you can see that in that movie, Jesus Revolution. It's depicted there. But that's the last mass conversion, big, big movement of evangelism that's happened nationwide in, our, in my understanding. I think we're due. So pray for those things. Pray for revival. Pray for awakening. And just see what God does. So He is a big God. But be ready when you pray for those things. That means change for you. That means you do different things. You uh, are expected to participate. So be, pray with an open heart. All right? Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for this story. It's, it's a wonderful story. It's an inspiring story. But I pray, O oh Lord, that we would read it humbly and knowing that we, uh, in many ways, are like the Israelites in the valley, just taking this wait and see mindset instead of just wholeheartedly jumping in with you. So I pray that, Lord, we would expect you to do great things and we would take on the great things you lead us to do. Lord, we do pray for revival in our our country. We pray for a great awakening uh, once again to come across our land. We pray, O Lord, for your power because we need it. If anything good is going to happen, if anything life-changing is going to happen, it's going to be because of you. So we pray that we would 
see things happen in our church that can only be explained by your power. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.